a story of a journey from the second chapter of Matthew, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read from the NIV version of the Bible. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My two oldest children are both girls, and they are close in age. They're about two and a half years apart. One of the things that I remember from their early years, when they were mobile but not yet in school, was that it was a challenge to go out in public to run errands to shop. It was a challenge, but it was necessary. I have this one memory. The three of us were in Dillard's, the department store, and I'd even brought along my mother for reinforcements. When I'm sure something caught my eye, some fabric or some style, and then I heard the four-year-old ask me, Mom, where's Alice? Alice has always been rather slippery. And so I looked down and I looked underneath the displays in my general vicinity, and then I started asking the question, where's the baby? Have you seen a little one? Have you seen a baby? Where's the baby? Others wanted to join in my search. Of course, her grandmother and a store employee and a kind stranger, all questioning, where's the baby? Has anyone seen a child? We found her. I suspect that that one came with a homing device because we found her in the children's department. She was standing right next to a giant gumball machine about three or four times her height. Her eyes were wide and she was salivating trying to figure out how to get into that gumball machine. The question that fuels the whole story of the second chapter of Matthew is, in fact, where's the baby? The Magi, Herod, even all of Jerusalem ask the question. They want to know, where's the baby? 
And this baby is not stationary. He's on the go. He doesn't stay in one place for very many verses of Scripture. We locate him in his mother's arms in Bethlehem in a home, no longer lodging in a stable. His parents take him to Egypt to escape Herod's massacre of the infants. And when Herod dies, the baby is returned to Israel, but ultimately finds home in the countryside of Galilee. I'm indebted this week to Kristen Bell of the Robcast for speaking some ideas to preach, for sparking some of my ideas. So if, if, if what I say is unclear or if you want to know more, listen to the most recent Robcast. What Kristen and Rob reminded me this week is that a search for a baby is a search for hope. I've experienced that, the presence of a baby stirring up hope in me. Mostly it's the ones that aren't my responsibility, <laughs> that I don't have to feed or change or get up with in the night. When I see a baby, I can feel my heart softening because I see in that child something new that God is doing in the world. That feeling of spotting a baby is that feeling of hope for me. Hope is being attentive to what God is up to in the world, to what God is doing that's new in the world. Now, what strikes me as particularly strange about the Magi's search for hope, for the baby, for the child-born king of the Jews, is that they take their search to King Herod. How is it that these wise men don't know any better. Is their appearance before Herod supposed to build suspense? Or is it supposed to be comic relief? Are they really just fools, not wise at all? Some have suggested as much. Or do the Magi seriously suppose that they're looking for Herod's own son? You know, we don't know what motivates the Magi we do have a good idea about what motivates King Herod. Now, I read from the NIV translation, which says that news of the new king disturbs him, but other translations say frightened, and one translation says terrified. He's terrified of the possibility of a new king, and Herod the Great really is a terror himself. He's propped up by the Roman Empire, and he is ruling by intimidation and violence. He had members of his own family tried and killed because he suspected that they were after his crown. And Matthew chapter 2 describes this slaughter of the innocents by Herod, where every child and baby under the age of two in and around Bethlehem is murdered. Are the Magi extremely naive or courageous? I'm not really sure. What I am sure of is that they stare fear and threat in the face and they ask for hope. A baby. Where's the baby? Where's the reign of a new king, a new way? You know, I find this to be instructive, that in the presence of fear and threat, I want to be bold enough 
I want to be bold enough to ask for hope. I want to be bold enough to search for hope. I noticed that hope was quite the buzzword this week as 2020 became 2021. From the comfort of our living room, we watched the happenings in New York's Times Square. And the word hope, it seemed to me, was thrown from that stage like confetti. Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard made an important distinction between hopes and wishes that I think is very helpful. He said that wishes are desires that are unlikely to materialize. So um, a good way to remember this is to think of Aladdin's genie. When the genie poofs out of Aladdin's lamp and he offers to grant him what? Three wishes, not three hopes, right? Because wishes are things that are highly unlikely to happen, like winning the Powerball. A ticket was purchased in my household this week for the Powerball. That's a wish. That's not a hope. The odds were undoubtedly stacked against us, but we wished anyways, and it, and, uh, it wouldn't much matter if I hoped in that lottery ticket. Hope does involve confidence, but it is the kind of confidence that anticipates God's work, God's work for good. And hope and faith work strongly together. They work hand in hand, as many of the letters in the New Testament uh, teach, like Romans and 1 Corinthians and Hebrews all say that hope and faith work together. Hope deepens as we experience God to be trustworthy as we experience God working for good. The truth of the matter, I think, is that hope in its purest form belongs to people of faith. I can't really see a way for an atheist to hope. They can certainly wish, but the confidence of hope belongs to people who have seen the presence of the goodness of God, those who know that goodness will persevere. The Magi's search for the Christ child is encouragement to you and to me to boldly hope, to search for the baby, to expect to witness goodness, even when the fearful anticipate evil, we are to anticipate good, we hope. And there is in this Bible story a hopeful posture or a stance that can help us that reminds us that goodness is coming, even if we don't quite know exactly how this goodness will come. It's the posture of the Magi when they find the baby. You know, they say that they're going to worship, like Herod says that he's going to worship the child, but specifically the text says that when the Magi find the baby, they kneel, they bow. Bowing is a stance of hopefulness. My children all took piano lessons when they were in grade school, and built into every lesson was two bows. The student and the teacher would face one another, and there was one bow at the beginning before the lesson ever started, and then the second bow was at the end of the lesson. Our teacher would often say to my children as she bowed, I honor you. 
And so I came to associate that phrase, I honor you, with the bow. Sometimes at the end of the lesson bow, if I was lucky, my children would say to the teacher, thank you for teaching me. And inevitably, our teacher would say back to them, and thank you for teaching me. The bow reminds us that we are all students. It reminds us to be open to something new, something hopeful that we don't yet see, that we don't yet know. Kristen Bell said that the practice that has helped her the most in 2020 was this practice, the spiritual practice of bowing. Maybe you saw it in the world in 2020 because it was a a socially distant, acceptable way to greet one another, right? We sometimes bowed toward one another. We typically think of bowing in the presence of greatness, right? In the presence of nobility. We're watching the crown at my house. Or the presence of majesty. We bow to something or someone who's worthy of our respect. And this may, in fact, subdue us, but it doesn't transform us. The practice of bowing that transforms us involves bowing to anything, bowing to everything. If it's difficult, I bow. If I don't understand it, I can bow. In the bow, I acknowledge I'm a student and I'm ready to learn. Instead of moving to control, tightening my neck muscles as I often do, clenching my fists for a fight, I can soften, I can bow and admit there might just be some possibilities, some good possibilities that I can't see, that I can't make happen. Trusting the good that is beyond my control and that is to come. The Magi reached Mary and the baby and they kneel and they bow, they offer the gifts that they have, and then they go home by another way. They don't go home the way that they came, the way of fear, via Herod. They go home another way. You know, the very first readers of this gospel, they weren't called Christians. That moniker came later in history. The very first followers of Christ, those who valued what Matthew wrote, what he had to say about the Magi and the Christ child, were simply called followers of the way. And I suggest to you it was another way. A way that was other than fear. A way of hope. Trusting in the goodness of the Christ. Like the Magi, may you and I both be followers of the way in 2021. Another way. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, you illumine a way for us that is free from fear and control. It is the path of a student, the path of surrender and of adventure. It is the wise path. As we enter a new year, 
would you stir in each of us true hope? Hope that we can hold on to, that we can grasp. Hope that fuels our every step and strengthens us to lift the very gifts that we carry. We ask this in the name of the one who showed us another way, your way, Jesus the Christ. Amen. As followers of the way, would you stand and greet one another, your fellow travelers, with signs of Christ's peace, which include, but but is not limited to, the bow. (laughs) May the peace of Christ be with you all. I honor you. And I invite you to pray with me the prayer of great thanksgiving as we prepare for communion. Those of you who are in the room, you can take your seats again. Let's pray together. Eternal God, you created light out of darkness and brought forth life on earth. You formed us in your image and you breathed into us the breath of life. When we turn away and our love fails, your love always remains steadfast. Holy are you, Lord, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom you have revealed yourself, our light and our salvation. You sent a star to guide wise men to where the Christ was born. And in your signs and witnesses in every age and through all the world, you lead your people from far places to his light. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks to you, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood. It's a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ, through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. There are no qualifications for taking communion in this room, um, only peeling back two seals for communion. This is the body and the blood of Christ. It's given for us all. Amen. Oh,